this week. When I was about 11 or 12, I realized that if I was to be a married Roman Catholic woman, technically any sort of birth control is not permitted. And I thought, my goodness, how can I, I'd be constantly having to drop out of plays. I'd be sitting in producer's office saying, I'm pregnant again. I can't, I can't be in this play. Because <laughs> I was a very faithful Roman Catholic and I really believed in it and practiced it. It was very important to me. And that was the first kind of thing where I thought, this, uh, I don't know if I can do this. When Kate Werneberg decided to convert from Catholic to Anglican in her early 20s, for her, it was a question of integrity. And this pursuit of integrity has become central to her entire life. Kate and I talk about the process of making faith your own as an adult and finding practices and rituals that reflect who you are. And she talks about her life as a theater artist and how this work is informed by her commitment to creating justice and equality for all. Because how do you stay true to your values when you're still figuring out what they are? You find a little faith. I'm Maren Smith, and this is Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek people in Hamilton, Ontario, and Kate Verneberg lives on Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Ojibwa Chippewa, and Wendat territory in Toronto, Ontario. What is giving you hope in your life right now? Is there a story you can tell of an instance recently that made you feel hopeful for your future or the future of the world? Yeah. Um, The first thing that comes to mind is uh, I just came back from a a children's theater tour. I mean, not just came back. It's been about six weeks now. But those experiences are sort of big blocks in in, in time because they're unusual. So it feels like I still just came back. Mm -hmm. Um, I was out in St. Catharines with carousel players and we were doing a show called Wonder Water, uh, which uh, was for grades three to eight about um, water and land stewardship. And before we went out on the road, when we were still in rehearsal, we kind of thought, how is this going to land with the kids? It's not, um, it, it has sort of almost a spiritual element, I would say, that piece. There's a lot of quietness, there's a lot of appreciation of nature and our place within nature. Uh, and we thought, what if the kids just don't connect to that? What if it doesn't hold their attention? That was a fear we had as the creative team. Mm-hmm. But being out on the road uh, and meeting the kids all over the Niagara region and also up into Hamilton, even in Peel region, kids are really mad about pollution. They're really upset about um, conservation and their their futures in the world. We, we never really had an, had an attention problem in that play because it did speak to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they felt... Uh, connected to it. And so that was very heartening to see that younger people than I are, this is very serious for them and they're taking it seriously. I also think they see themselves being at the front of the, of the movement. They see people like Autumn Peltier and Greta Thunberg, Mm -hmm. you know, leading this movement and being really vocal 
uh, and they have a lot more access to that those sort of international or or um, maybe not international, but like uh, as a kid, I remember the, my only kind of peek into the outside world was the CBC radio and the newspaper that came to our house. Mm-hmm. But a lot of kids in this generation have access to the internet, which I didn't get till I was about ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they can see and hear. Uh, both of those young women making speeches and going about their business and advocating. And so they can see themselves uh, as being part of, of that shift. They're seeing that they, they matter and people, adults are listening. Connecting in with what you were saying about your experience of connection with activism, that sense of, of you know, wanting to, to better the world for yourself. You were saying when you were growing up, you found that through newspaper cbc can you talk a little bit more about sort of your sense of what you learned about the world as a kid growing up i'll just go on instinct um i grew up in ottawa mainly i kind of grew up in two regions which is interesting my both sets of my grandparents lived in niagara Mm. uh, and my parents had jobs and we lived in ottawa which is where we went to school and ottawa is a government town Um, and my parents used to have dinner parties uh, on Sunday nights and their friends who also all worked for the federal government would sit around the dining room table and complain about cabinet ministers and, you know, laugh and talk about the business of government and what it meant to be a civil servant. And so there was, of course, some part of me that thought this was incredibly dull to hear about, you know, the liberal cabinet ministers of the 1970s and what they did and how they interacted with their staff and with the people who worked with them and for them on their portfolios. But at the same time, that was a very foundational part of um, forming a perspective, I guess, which is that humans have systems and we work in the systems. I also developed, unfortunately, like a huge cynicism around elected officials and the news. I always assumed that most of it was bunk. A lot of what you heard was not true. A lot of it, most things that were reported were uh, spun in some way. Um, And that was really my perspective on the information coming in for a long time. It took me a long time to realize that journalistic ethics were, there were standards. And I have a great respect for for journalism. It's very important. But um, so that was one part. That's sort of the hustle and bustle, the 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 um, business of human life. And then there's the other part. Uh, one one set of my grandparents ran a fruit farm in Niagara, and they retired before I was born. But they still had a one acre plot of land that my grandfather planted with every tree, every vine, um, everything that he had grown on his big commercial fruit farm. He had. A miniature version of and he worked that land literally every day of the year and so they were living a very different kind of lifestyle one that was very connected to the land and, and we spent a lot of time out there in in his orchard he at uh, at his funeral um my aunt's father you know families are all connected but my aunt by marriage's father <laughs> gave the homily homily the, uh, the eulogy that's the word <laughs> and he, he told this very true story about my opa he knew each piece of his each fruit hanging on a tree he knew by name and he would go around because he would walk out with him into his garden and he would say now this fella here is not developing as I would like him to you know he's he needs to be a bit more in the sun or you know and he would go through touching each piece of fruit talking about them as individuals that he cared for and noticed and that was always a great joy of being there was being out in in that garden and and seeing his not just his care but his incredible interest i mean he 
he was, he lived between 1905 and 1995. Uh, and he had one leg that was shorter than the other from having fallen off a motorcycle in like 1922. <laughs> so he was wearing like, like, his body was not comfortable moving around necessarily, but he was passionate and driven and interested in growth and in the nurturing of, of this world that he had created for himself to live in. Um, so those are the two foundational things I would I would talk about in terms of global perspective. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really interesting. So on this one hand, this highly structured government mm. aspect that you're saying that grew a cynicism of sorts with you from mm. seeing behind the curtain. And then this flip side, which was this very simple life, but very deeply grounded and rooted in place. Mm-hmm. And connected to the seasons and and that. So I'm curious as to then where in the midst of these two kind of dynamics that you were living with your faith life as a child lived. What did you what did you learn as a child about faith? I grew up in a Roman Catholic household. Uh, technically, my dad is a Lutheran, um, but we've always practiced in my mom's uh, Roman Catholic faith. And she's as long as I think she's lived, she's been a very active and involved member uh, of that religious community. And so something that I really enjoy about the, the Catholic liturgical calendar is that it is kind of modeled on on uh, seasonal. It, it is seasonal in itself, but the seasons kind of follow the wheel of the European year. Uh, and so um, there is very little incongruity, I would say, between a sort of those experiences, if you, if you want to call it that. I mean, the thing that always sticks out in this climate is the, the date of Easter, which <laughs> if we're practicing sort of a, a European style Christianity, it comes too soon. It's still winter in this part of Canada, at least when Easter rolls around usually. It's not quite warm enough for for the buds to be out, which I always found really kind of uh, annoying as a kid <laughs> that we were celebrating the spring festival but it, it wasn't spring yet. yeah <laughs> um but that was my first exposure to faith was like my mom um stayed home after i was born for 10 years so my dad was working but my mom decided to stay home and when i got to be a few months old we were going to mass six days a week some weeks because that's something a lot of roman catholic parishes offer is daily mass except on saturdays they give themselves a break then <laughs> and because she could she went and we went with her my sister and i when, when she was born as well so um hearing uh, the words of that liturgy and the the biblical stories and the hymns and the psalms that are recited um all all really became a deep part of how i live my life and my literary references and my understanding of of um uh like moral philosophy, I think are all very deeply rooted in that tradition. Uh, my husband is not uh, from a Christian background mainly, um, but sometimes I, you know, I'll make an illusion. We'll, we'll be at the end of a, a long, tiring day, and we'll be thinking about whether we should get takeout or cook something. And I'll say, "Oh, sufficient unto the day is the evil therein." And he's like, well, "Sorry, what? What does that mean?" And <laughs> it's a quote from the Gospel of Matthew, from the King James Bible uh, translation, and it basically means like. Don't borrow trouble. Don't try to do too much. Just, just it's okay to just deal with what's in front of you right now. <laughs> so it became almost like a rhythm mm-hmm. in your life, and the words became kind of written in your mind from the repetition of the ritual of going to mass. And 
would you say? Absolutely. And my mom is also a wonderful storyteller. And so she would tell us uh, the stories of the Gospels. I remember the Gospels most. I'm sure she told the stories from the Old Testament too. Um, partially because we had these long car rides to go to Niagara to visit both sets of our grandparents. Uh, and we would go down for the big holidays, for Christmas, for Easter. And so she, we'd be in the car in the dark uh, and she would be telling us the stories. And she has this wonderful style where she can um, really humanize and, and bring things to life. So uh, she'd be telling us uh, the various stories of Holy Thursday and and Good Friday, and she would tell them with great. Uh, she her her family is has a very strong Celtic strain, and they're fabulous oral storytellers. And she definitely has that gift. Um, and so, uh, not just like the formal ritual of mass, but also my mom's like lived experience and her desire to pass that on and and to make it real for us. Um, very formative experiences. What did that mean to you as a child or as a young person? What did you take on from? her storytelling and the way she captured the essence of, you said, the Gospels for you? I think the importance of them and and the ex- expressions of faith in my household growing up were very important. Uh, very important to go to church every week, to be involved, to go to confession, which is the, the Roman Catholic ritual of repentance for sins, for when you've done something wrong. Um, important to take the sacraments, like going to communion and, and uh, to, to, I mean, we went to Catholic schools, so there was very little personal effort <laughs> to be put into to experience a first communion, or because that was all organized by the community. Um, but it was very important, and those those dates were celebrated, and we had cakes, and, and uh, they were there were very important rituals of, of, of growing up um, and, and to be personally invested. Um, I think from my mom's tradition especially, and I mean, both of my parents, I've really inherited, I've inherited a lot. <laughs> I mean, obviously we all do, uh, but I'm, I think I'm one of those people who has taken a lot of what they learned as, as a young person and applied them to, to their own life going forward, as opposed to someone who said, you know, that is really not for me. I'm going to go a different way. Right. Um, so a lot of, as I said, like the moral philosophy I live by, uh, I think is deeply rooted in my parents' culture and also in those stories that they chose to tell us and to exemplify for us and to animate for us. Um have really formed a lot of my perspective on on how you should live. Hmm. So you would say in your life it was an evolution, a growth from the foundation that your parents laid in this ritualistic culture that had a rhythm and a season to it that was grounded in moral values to then growing that into your own kind of cycle of rituals and seasons and and moral values from there. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to talk about more about how that happened or what your transition was then from under your parents' roof like that into living on your own as an adult? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I um, started attending the Anglican Church when I was about 22. Uh, on Off and on, didn't go all the time. Um, but I decided to make that leap to to be received into the Anglican Communion as they, which is the formal language for um, taking on that identity, uh, when I was about twenty five, um, and for those who might not know, uh, a lot uh, Anglicans practice in, in various and many ways, uh, but um, there is a central ritual that are that are very similar to many Roman Catholic 
traditions and rituals. And they're various and different. There are people from all kinds of different cultures who practice in languages and use their own cultural expressions. But um, they're, they're noticeably similar. <laughs> in some ways, they follow the same wheel of ritual. Uh, the services are aligned in kind of the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for me, the sort of key difference between what I've observed in some practices of Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism is that what I find in, in the Anglican expression is that there is a, a, an acceptance that we all worship together. We don't all necessarily believe exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, and I'm sure like that's very true if you would go amongst the pews of a Catholic church as well, of course. But there is this idea, as I've observed, that... Um, the Catholic Church is very hierarchical, very structural. There's the Pope at the top and, and the bishops and car- cardinals and bishops and priests that, that roll out from under him. Uh, it's also a very gendered hierarchy. Only men can currently serve as priests, which are the spiritual leaders in communities um, in that system, which isn't true in the Anglican Church. Women can, can move into that uh, experience, and, and I'm sure non-binary people, uh, if not already ordained, will be. Right. Um, that's just not a gender is not a question of leadership at this time also there is under that like room for different opinions and ideas and feelings um there's also room for people to be queer and mm-hmm. and this is something that i came to naming quite late in my life i'm in my early 30s now uh, but I am a bisexual person. <laughs> and I mean, I became an Anglican before I was ready to really, like, admit that to myself. <laughs> and I thought it was just generally morally important that people who are LGBTQ2S be given room to be fully themselves. But that also <laughs> applies to me. <laughs> um, and I know many, and I have known uh people who are LGBTQ to us, who, who live within the Roman Catholic Church and for whom that is truly a good and nourishing spiritual home. But for me, I needed to develop and, and, and to be somewhere else. And so for me, the Anglican Church was, was a good fit. In some ways, it balances the traditions of both my parents. Uh, the Anglican Church is in full uh, communion with the Anglican, no, sorry, with the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church, which don't get scared by the word evangelical in the front. It's it's just what they call a mainstream Lutheran. <laughs> um, so uh, there's some sharing of practices and of uh, the parish that I uh, am part of. I belong to a, a, the church choir, and we sing a lot of Bach, a lot of of that Germanic tradition, which is so a part of my father's cultural heritage. Um, But that isn't sung too much in the Roman Catholic Church because it's Protestant music. So for me, the Anglican Church is a wonderful synthesis of who I am and also of where I've come from. So what was the impetus? Because you said you started attending the church when you were 22. What was the impetus that brought you to it? What was the curiosity to grow in your faith? Partially... This might sound crazy, but I think if we really boil it down, it comes down to personal choice versus following the letter of the law Mm. and, like, your own personal discernment. Like, I knew from the time I was very small that I really wanted to be married, that I I wanted that sort of, like, close and loving relationship and and to uh, pursue marriage. And I am married, and I love it. (laughs) Um, But I also knew I wanted to be an artist and to work in the theater specifically. And... Oh, <laughs> when I was about 11 or 12, I realized that if I was to be a married Roman Catholic woman, um, technically any sort of birth control is not permitted. 
uh, except for like the rhythm method right. in Catholicism. That's a huge tenant of that faith. And I thought, my goodness, how can I, I'd be constantly having to drop out of plays. I'd be sitting in producer's office saying, I'm pregnant again. I can't, I can't be in this play. And I thought, that, oh, so that is the first thing that I kind of remember of being like this. And because I was a very faithful Roman Catholic and I really believed in it and practiced it. It was very important to me. And that was the first kind of thing where I thought, I guess, at the beginning of your sexual maturity, where I thought, this, uh, I don't know if I can do this. And I remember I was constantly looking in the papers for examples of Catholic actresses who had balanced family. And of course, a lot of contemporary Roman Catholics practice some form of contraception and there are some Roman Catholic thinkers leaders who really advocate for that being an okay thing to do technically it is still not allowed and, and so like integrity is also important to me and I felt that I would not be integral if I chose to practice any sort of form of marriage contraception under like the, the mantle of the Catholic Church and and that I just didn't because I, I had a lot of conversations with priests as I was making this decision like should I stay should I go what do I do uh, and some Anglican priest said are you sure you want to come over you might be happiest in a more liberal Roman Catholic parish it is a big thing to switch identities and especially Catholic identities which for some people is almost closer to like an ethnic identity than than just a, a practice of religion um and and for me I I did want to because I wanted my values to be really transparent. I didn't want to kind of do my own thing while swearing to believe something else. Um, and I, and I, I want to say that without any judgment of people who, who choose differently or who live in, in different ways, because we're all in our own past and we're all doing different stuff. But for me, that's kind of what felt that, that I quite remember that moment as being the beginning of thinking, what if I don't believe all of this? Can I integrally live my life swearing to follow a very strict set of rules that I don't personally think is right. Like, I remember once we were, we were in the car on the way to or from church, I can't remember, and I can't remember what we were talking about, but it had to do with the decisions of the bishops, the Catholic bishops, making a statement on behalf of the whole church. And I remember saying to my mom, but what if you don't agree? Like, what if you sincerely disagree with what the bishop has said and, and don't think it's right? Do we have to follow his order? And she said, well, you have to, we have to trust that the bishop has been placed there with his spiritual guidance that we don't have. He may have knowledge that we don't have. He may have spiritual growth and development that we don't have. And I, like, I respect that a lot. But for me, I thought, if I sincerely thought that what the bishop was doing was wrong or, or his teaching was wrong, I couldn't. I just couldn't go along. And, and I don't mean to judge anyone who is in some ways walking a more complicated, a more nuanced path along those roads, trying to balance a faithfulness to uh, a traditional and important spiritual authority with their own personal conscience. I made one choice, other people make different ones. But those were some of the moments where I thought, I don't know if I can live my adult life as a faithful Roman Catholic. Can you describe a bit more of what that realization felt like? Was it, did it feel, was the earth falling out from under you? Or did it feel like, you know, something that was maybe a spark that had been lit inside? It felt really sad. It felt really difficult to think that. And I spent a couple of years kind of just floating you know, like when I went away to university, I went to different churches. I went to the United Church. I went to the Lutheran Church. Sometimes I didn't go to church at all um, because I had that freedom too, you know. Um, 
and I missed the structure a little bit and I missed some sort of practice, but I didn't know where to go really. And you know, teenagers, they just want to be free a little bit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, you just want to kind of not practice if you've been practicing so intensely yeah. for so long, <laughs> who are you? Where do you land? Um, but it was, it was really difficult. And for many years I saw that, uh, that need in me to move away as, as like almost like a failure that I couldn't be good enough, that I couldn't be pure enough and, and submissive enough and, you know, spiritual enough to, to follow the, the right rules as it were. Um, and then like having to tell my family that, that I was practicing differently was very, very difficult. They were very, my mom and my grandmother especially, were very hurt, very disappointed, very, uh, they really struggled with it. Um, and I, I went to therapy. <laughs> there In Toronto, where I live, there are three um, major streams of publicly available therapy, which are uh, Catholic Family and Child, the Catholic Aid Society, uh, Jewish Family and Child, and then the general public one. And anybody can use any of the three. It's they're, they're funded by religious bodies, but they're not just for people of those religions. And um, my family, my nurse practitioner, who is my quote-unquote family doctor, was like, just put yourself on all of the lists. And the Jewish one came up first. So I went to Jewish family and child to uh, talk through my issues about changing my Christian religious <laughs> um, expression. And it was really great. Um, I remember we were we were talking through like how to have these conversations with my mom, my grandmother, especially in loving and compassionate ways, and leaving lots of room for them, and and but also not getting you know knowing what's best for you and pursuing that path, uh, and that was really helpful and made that a lot uh, a lot easier than it seemed at first. Uh, but I remember once my therapist suddenly said, "Okay, but we've talked a lot about your family. Like, how has this been for you?" And I like burst into tears. I was like, it's been really, really hard. <laughs> um, yeah, and it took me a long time to feel comfortable in a new community uh, and to feel okay about the choice that I had made. So, you know, one thing that can happen when people step away from their kind of own faith tradition is they don't find anything else. Mm-hmm. Or they they maybe go in a completely different direction, as we've kind of said. But for you, it sounds like from what you're saying, there was an importance of having a spiritual practice or ritual in your life. Mm-hmm. And that made you search out this new community. Why do you think it's important to you? I think there's probably lots of reasons. I think it is important for humans to have spiritual practices, whether they are organized, group, individual, religious, non-religious. I think it is an important part of who we are as people, and it's certainly an important part of who I am. Um, And for me, I'm a theater artist, really, in in my trade, and and that is a collaborative group, face-to-face kind of work. Um, and I work well in those environments. And so uh, being so just on a very personal level, that kind of spiritual practice works well for me. I think it's also like deeply cultural. Mm-hmm. You know, I think religion is so, so cultural. Uh, on my dad's side, 
his mum and his uh, great aunts and generations and generations before them were church choir singers. And on my mum's side too, her, um, my grandparents on my maternal side actually converted to Catholicism. They were from sort of Presbyterian United Church backgrounds. And uh, my grandmother's father was a minister and his wife, my great-grandmother, was a beautiful singer and played the organ for his services and, and led the singing. So, like, that tradition of practicing spirituality through song and through group singing, hugely important, and something I grew up doing, too. I, I sang in the in the uh, cross-board choir. The whole Catholic school board had an auditioned choir, and because my parents realized that I'd inherited this, this gift of singing, they sought out ways for, for me to practice it, and so they had me audition for the choir, and I got in, and bam, it was great! And so, that's a very natural expression and I've sung in a couple like secular choirs but I didn't really like it <laughs> I wanted to have the spiritual element and I wanted to have uh, the music that I knew but also the music of my ancestors that I didn't necessarily know because a lot of um, contemporary Catholic music was written in the 20th century which is great I love it and it means something to me when I hear it and when I get to sing it but getting to sing like the pieces that my own great 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 grandmothers sang themselves and maybe even premiered because they are from the same region that kind of developed uh, community choral singing in the western tradition is deeply meaningful to me uh, and so getting to participate in public, physical, face-to-face -face rituals, and also having this element of singing. It's, there's a quote from the Bible, he who sings prays, uh, uh, sing, he who sings prays twice. Um, and I, that's how I feel, for sure. So all of those reasons really led me to, to this practice, yeah. It's interesting to me, as your work as a theater artist, as a performer, is linked in such a tangible way to your practice of faith because y you've discovered part of that through performing yes. in your faith community. <laughs> um, so how do you see your your faith playing out in in the work that you do because you you perform professionally and you don't just perform in a religious context. So how do you see the connection between your work and your faith? I think art is an act of hope. It's an act of beauty. It's an act of love. And I, there, I know many artists who really disagree with me on the aspect of beauty, but I think ugly things can be beautiful too. And I think that um, vicious truths are still acts of love. Um, and so people sometimes misunderstand me when I talk about these things. They think I want everything to be nice and everything to be gentle. And I think that niceness and gentleness are very important in a vicious and cruel world of inequality and injustice. Um, but I see a lot of value in approaching art with those values in mind. That it is always, I'm a performance artist mainly, and, and a writer, so I'm always performing or writing for an audience. Uh, and it is important for me to always love the audience, either to love them in terms of support and, up, and upholding them and uplifting them, or in terms of telling them the straight truth, mm -hmm. really giving them a chance to reckon with themselves. But it always for me, almost always must come from a place of love for them, however that love is expressed. And I think that that definitely comes from a foundation of faith, and a foundation that, that for me, God is love. That is also in the Bible, and I believe it to be literally true, that love is supreme, that love comes in so many forms. It, it, I think our culture sometimes struggles to interpret love beyond a romantic structure, 
like I was, this is so interesting in some ways, I was in church on Sunday uh, and I was leading the prayers of the people, which are the petitions that are written. Um, they're usually prayers for the world as we live it in the moment, uh, prayers for people in leadership from, you know, the queen all the way down to the local municipal councillors. Um, and traditionally there is one of the last ones are prayers for people who have died and the people who mourn them. And it was, I was leading these prayers and I got to that section and I thought, oh no, I'm going to cry in a microphone in a congregation of like 150, 200 people. Uh, and I did because someone I, I know has recently taken their own life. And just in that moment, it just, you know, but I was standing at the podium in the middle of the congregation and someone I know like leaned over and put his hand on the on the podium and I put my hand on his hand and I continued and my eyes were full of tears and and as I turned away from from the podium someone I had met once or twice took me and gave me a huge hug and said I love you and I thought my god like what generosity in these hard and ugly moments of life that you can be in a community where someone so beautifully, so simply can just say, I love you. And I knew she really meant it. And so like, that is the community. That is a reality that grounds you, that allows you to go out and offer that same generosity to someone else that says, I'm going to continue, um, you know, performing in plays about climate change and writing novels or essays or poems uh, that um, to offer something else to someone else the way that I've been offered that same love, compassion, uh, care. It, it fills your well. It does. To step out there in the world is what I'm hearing mm -hmm. in that. So one of the the things that I know about Catholicism is the idea that action in the world is an important part of faith, mm -hmm. that acts of service are important as well. And to me, I'm hearing a little bit of that echoed in the way you see art as well, mm -hmm. that it, there's that in the work that you do as an artist, you see it as an act of service to fellow people or to the world. Is that kind of fair? Yeah. We all have talents and gifts, and they're all very different. And we need all of them to function as a as a community, as a, as a like as Saint Paul says, you know, the body of Christ has many members, and it's a pun on words, right? Like a finger is not like a heart valve, but they are both very essential to the living of, of right, many human right. lives. <laughs> That's such a great way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I would go beyond just the people who call themselves Christians, but like humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I always want to be very careful not to to be too judgy or, or to come down too hard on people, because I always want to keep in mind that who make different choices than me. I mean, because I don't know everything, and I'm just my own self in my own way, and I. I can't see the big master plan necessarily if there is one. <laughs> um, we all need these differences to, to work and to function. And I think sometimes we really undercut ourselves as artists. We reduce ourselves to stereotypes that are, that are prevalent in our culture, that we're flighty, that that we um, are, are uh, vapid people, that we don't invest in, in the community, that we don't offer something important. Um, and, and we undercut our own gifts, too. Things that come naturally to us, we sometimes, people of all walks of life do this. Other people desperately need. Like, where would I be without my accountant? I don't know. I'd be in deep trouble with the government. <laughs> you know, there's not a skill, a talent, or an interest I possess, but he does, thank goodness. Um, the ability to 
make art and to make entertainment, let's be honest, I think it's very important. Like, I am currently, in my acting practice, auditioning for a lot of Hallmark movies about Christmas, and I see that you could read that as vapid, as simple, as commercial, and there are elements of that to that work. But I also know that people watch them who are exhausted, who need to take time away from the bustle and hustle of, you know, their credit card bill getting overinflated because they want to provide for their kids because someone lost a job, or people who are just tired from the capitalist rat race and just want to watch something nice. So I see that too as as an important sharing of a gift that I have, to be able to to just offer the casting director a few options uh, because... I can I think about the audience on the other end and what kind of an act of love it might be to create these films for them. Um, and I think there are deeper and other levels too. There are a lot of people who are working um, in art with the broader community and there are a lot of people who believe, uh, which I think is very important too, that everyone should practice art, not just people for whom it is a profession, and that professionalizing art was in some ways a huge mistake because we've we've sectioned that out from our general humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I I uh, do some volunteer work right now in the, the drop-in that's run out of my church's basement. It's called The Common Table. And I think on Tuesdays, they have art studio. So uh, folks who may be street involved or, um, you know, otherwise may be in need of, of some time in an indoor space that is heated and safe uh, and has two meals a day served um, can come in and uh, build some art with a with a like a a professional artist who's there to guide them and help them and you should see the art that lines the walls of that basement people have all kinds of amazing talents and skills um that is a very important you know art as community service which is like directly related to to people who are struggling to live in our society so i think we can we can spin out like how hallmark movies are a service but i think also the guy who runs the art studio is doing like a bang-up job there (laughs) so art and your faith in art provides resiliency or it helps you become more resilient through the challenges of life it's a way that you also use to get yourself through difficult times yep Mm-hmm. And it's just become so much a part of how I see the world. I was very lucky to have the parents I did. You know, they always encouraged us in drawing and painting and singing and and uh, taking us to see art and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that was always part of our life. You talk a lot about your how you're conscious of the audience when you're creating a piece of art, whether it's something that you're writing or creating yourself or whether it's something that you're performing um what do you think audiences need what do you think people are craving it's hard to say i mean every audience is different and and you know there's a whole politic to who is in the room and why um i think a lot of canadian audiences just need to listen to voices that have been traditionally left out of conversations we're in such a, a wonderful moment here of, of um, uh, a renaissance of indigenous art and culture, uh, which has been completely powered through by the indigenous community. And no thanks to, to the governments and audiences often that are, that are in place right now. Um, we're seeing movies and films and TV and, and uh, books and stage plays being created that are so vital and so necessary. Um, so I think 
many of us need to do a lot more listening on various subjects and to be open to hearing um, other people's perspectives and experiences uh, and letting them change us, letting them into who we are and how we function and allowing that to radically change our perspective of the world. So I think that's a very important part of contemporary art and what the audience needs. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what they need. They're, they're going to tell me what the, they need from my own artistic practice. They will let me know. <laughs> but I always try to approach it in a way that makes room for everyone's humanity, which no one can hit that bar all the time, you know. <laughs> but that's a goal I always have in mind. Is that like I did a lot of um, I still do clearly a lot of uh, theater for young audiences, uh, which are performed usually in the gym uh, of a school with no lighting. So there's no light barrier, which is usually how people think of the theater now is like the audience sits in complete darkness and the actors perform in blazing lights so right. no one can see each other. That's not the case. You can like and often they reach out and touch you. <laughs> You know, or they touch the props, the costumes, the set pieces. It's a very blended kind of audience experience. And I always try to approach those kinds of experiences with great love and great connection to those audiences. Um, and I try to practice that in all of the audi audiences I approach. I've done a lot of Shakespeare in the Park, which is, again, a similar situation. Maybe we see a pattern in my <laughs> professional practice where there's no light barrier. They're right up close to you. Um, and to invite them in, to let them know that it's okay to interact, that it's okay, that I can see you and you can see me. <laughs> um, and it's okay for us to see each other. Mm, yeah. I want to go back just a little bit to what you were talking about, about the need for listening in artistic practice to voices that aren't our own mm -hmm. um, and that aren't the elevated ones. Mm -hmm. And your idea that you that you talked about that that can bring personal growth and perspective change. And I just want to ask, what makes you believe that that's possible? <laughs> what do you see in the world or in your work that has shown you that 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 growth is possible? Because a lot of what we hear nowadays is about polarization, mm. right? About people being pulled apart, um, and your vision is for something quite the opposite. Where has that come from in you? Maybe it is in some ways in, in the bubble that I do live in, which is where face-to-face -face interaction is so important to me. <laughs> and I, I work in live performance mainly. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to, for me anyway, to not see things from a different perspective when you're face-to-face -face with someone. As I, I mentioned briefly that I, I was doing some volunteer work at a, a drop-in. And before uh, that phase of my life, I had spent a couple of years working for a, a different church where I was involved um, in their drop-in. So I wasn't there all the time, but it was part of my work to, to be in the drop-in and, and to to work there. Um, and I became much more radical in my political thinking, having been in those environments where day in, day out, you sit down with people and... We always attempt, or at least I always attempt, and I know the places that I, I've worked for and, and volunteer with, the very philosophy is very much one of peer-to-peer, -peer, that we're all human people with different struggles, um, but that I am not there to serve you, I am not there to, um, you know, to offer you charity, we are there to uh, 
like I have resources that you may not have. I'm here to help you access them. I'm there to listen to your story, to treat you with respect, to um, to hold space for you and um, respect you for where you're coming from. Um, and when you practice that, when you're doing that, you can't help but uh, I can't help anyway. Really feeling keenly the injustice that many people are are forced to live under, uh, and so I just can't take that. <laughs> I cannot be complacent <laughs> um, when you really when you're looking at that. When you're seeing an individual person or a group of people who are experiencing hardships that I don't experience for structural reasons, for racist reasons, for um, you know because people would rather not think about street drugs. They just don't want it in their backyard, as it were. Well, sorry, they're here, and people are suffering, and and we need to find a way. And like, your brother's problem is your problem. It doesn't mean that you should be rushing in and fixing it for them, but it means that you have to take seriously what their needs are and and respond, especially if you're someone with resources, someone who who has privileges. Um, I'm thinking of all the biblical quotes. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I imagine there are a lot of folks out there in our demographic who have grown up in these religious traditions that are also cultural traditions in the way that you've talked about, like the Catholic Church being that kind of dual, playing that dual role in your life, um, that are also, I imagine, struggling to now find their adult identity within that. Mm. And... I'm curious as to what you would say to someone who, or what you would say to your 22-year-old self or your 19-year-old self who was wrestling with some of that stuff and had the worries that you did about what am I letting go of? What is it going to mean to me and my family? Or, you know, all of those questions. What would you offer? I would say be gentle with the people around you who are going to disagree as much as you can because everyone is struggling. Everyone is just trying to live the best life they can according to what they know. Uh, so that would be the first thing. Um, and the second would be, what's important to you? What's integral to you? What do you want to pursue? It can be very frightening, very scary. And I think you have to really, especially when you're dealing with a religion like Catholicism in a Canadian context, Christianity in general, but the Catholic Church is an overwhelming religion here. Like, I think about 50% of the population have some affiliation with that church. And Christianity has had such a role in our political life. Um, all of our, like, state holidays follow the Christian calendar, uh, you know. Um, the rhythm of our business life follows the Christian calendar in a certain way. Uh, and also, in terms of the project of colonization, Christianity has done a massive amount of harm, which is going to take a long time to unpick and to heal, and that's going to have to take conscious choice as well, especially for people like me who choose to remain within the bounds of these religions. There is no walking away from that. And there are other harms as well. There's harms to all kinds of women, to queer people, to non-binary people. Like, It's naive, I think, of anyone to think that you wouldn't have to wrestle and grapple with those questions probably your whole life as to whether, where is you, are you best placed? Is it within the walls? Is it without? As I said before, I don't know what's right for anybody else, and I don't know what your role is necessarily. Only you may be able to divine that with help, with with guidance, with, with a deep listening to your internal voice. Um, because I think some people, how can it be otherwise, don't belong inside the walls. For some people, I'm sure a life of complete atheism 
and and no traditional spiritual practices is exactly right and we desperately need them in our society to function you know um so yeah i would say explore grapple question read things from different perspectives and and allow them to influence you without and, and then question why they influence you what do they appeal to? Do they appeal to your sense of justice? Do they appeal to your sense of, of comfort? Which can be a, you know, a very tricky thing. We must carefully walk what makes us feel comfortable. <laughs> um, and, and choose for yourself where you fit in the spectrum and the continuum. And if you choose the wrong thing, I said this, I, I was so lucky. I had a lot of support when I was transitioning and making these uh, decisions about my, my faith practice. Um, I was talking to a priest who herself had actually come from a Roman Catholic family and become an Anglican priest. And I was like, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I become an Anglican and upset my whole family and bamboozle my life and it's like not the right thing? And she's like, well, then you'll move on to something that is right for you. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's there's not an end to a spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. That it's one decision is just a step to whatever comes next. Yeah. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word faith in three ways. So number one is an allegiance or duty that you feel to something or someone. Um, number two, as a belief or trust that you have in something that's greater than yourself. Or three, as something that you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I turn these into questions put to you so for you kate in your life what do you feel a duty or allegiance to well my first answer is to my chosen family my husband and our cat <laughs> who lives with us and whom we are guardians to <laughs> they are my first allegiance and duty because as an adult i made those choices to to vow towards my husband uh, <laughs> love care uh, loyalty and, and friendship those aren't the words we used, but <laughs> generally. Um, so I think that is that is one of my first duties, is to value the relationships that I've chosen to take on. Um, and the first of those being the ones that I formally vowed to in a religious setting in front of all our friends and families and the spiritual powers that be to uphold them. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but also, more generally, to our friends, to our neighbors. I really try to think of political issues in terms of things that happen to my neighbors. You know, it's not just those people or a different group than me. It is, they are my neighbors. And, you know, my neighbors here in my apartment building live their own lives in their own ways and in, in, you know, uh, our different compartments of the building. But it all affects us when the hot water goes off, you know, or if there's hot water that's gone off in one apartment, like, we can't just sit around and, and say, oh, well, it's fine, my hot water's on. So I think that's an important way to think about allegiance and duty. Um, and yeah, I think I have a duty to, to integrity, to pursue integrity, and to challenge myself to be more and more integral. What do you, can you expand a bit on that? To really think about the choices you make, 
to the decisions you pursue, to the the path you're walking on, does it fit? Do you fit? Are you working hard enough towards something that's difficult but necessary and right? Are you working too hard for something that doesn't fit? That's not your job to do? I, I think I am, in general, an idealistic person. Um, and it's been a great journey of my adulthood to really be able to say, that's enough for now. That's good enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, about some, some things, some things we should never say that's good enough about. Uh, but, but we all have human limits, and we have to acknowledge them. And we have to say, oh, maybe that's why this isn't going so well. Maybe it's time for me to stop. Maybe I need to rest so that I can pick this back up in a better moment later. So all of that is part of integrity. What do you, Kate, put faith or trust in that is bigger than yourself? I put faith in love. And I've always held it of of dear value to really work hard that when you're disappointed in various kinds of love, or even when you yourself have lacked and, and failed in love, not to be cynical and hard-hearted <laughs> to return to having a soft heart and to to performing acts of love. Um, so I, I really believe in that. I believe that more people are filled with more love than most of us believe or understand. Yeah. Even when you're proved wrong. And uh, what do you, Kate, believe beyond a shadow of a doubt and everybody has something i think we are made for love i think our desire to be loved and to offer love in all of its many ways is our base impulse bigger than selfishness bigger than than self-serving uh i think it's is it's almost as integral as snatching your hand away from the element when it's hot and you accidentally touch it not realizing like if you've ever seen a child almost fall into traffic, which is, you know, you see in cities all the time, the whole street goes <gasps> and turns to, it doesn't matter what race that child is, whose child it is, how old they are. No one in their human instinct wants someone else to be hurt, to be harmed. I think that is, that's in there for everybody somewhere. So let's talk about your practice. Okay. One thing I had thought about was my Advent wreath. Mm. Um, that that's a very seasonal practice. Like most of my like rituals, I do in silence yeah. <laughs> inside my own mind. And the other thing is sort of, which is a, a practice I was taught as a child, and I know my grandmother was, and so that's probably a long family tradition. Is um, just the naming of people in prayer, like before you go to bed, or if you can't sleep in the night, you just name off all the people you would like to be held up to God or to, you know, that you would like to, some people express that as like sending a bit of light to, or, you know, counting all of your family members and your friends and also the people you may disagree with or that are difficult to love and to care for. Um, not that they may be changed, but that you may be changed in your approach to them. You say that came from your grandmother? Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about how that came to you? Yeah. Um, I guess the story that I I heard it through was that my grandmother, um, who was born in 1919 in Saskatchewan, 
had a quilt when she was a little kid. Both of her parents died when she was young, which is sad. Her dad died when she was three and her mom when she was about 18. Uh, but So this story comes from her very early childhood, before her father died. She had a quilt that was made of all of the... Um, uh, a patchwork quilt of bits and pieces of scraps of, of old clothes and, you know, whatever it was. And her parents would put her to sleep by reciting the litany of whose shirt it was. <laughs> you know, this piece of scrap from Uncle Thomas's old plaid shirt. Mm-hmm. And this from, you know, I don't know, Mum's wedding dress, whatever it was. Um, and of course, they, um, they did formal prayers as well. But I remember her saying how it was two things, a great comfort uh, to have her parents there, like, listing off the names and to know that she was, like, under the protection and the the, uh, the love of all the people who whose objects had gone into the making of her sleeping quilt, uh, but also it was, like, a delay tactic as a child, is that you could just keep saying, but whose shirt was this? Who was you to keep pointing out pieces of the quilt uh, to avoid <laughs> going to sleep? Um which we, which, which we continue, Ben and I, my husband to this day, calling Blessing Dickie. Because <laughs> my grandmother's tactic as a child, when her parents were sitting there listening to her prayers, saying, who would you, you know, like to pray for, and listing everybody's name, she, when, when you got down to Blessing Dickie, who was the canary, they were like, that's enough. You're, we're done. <laughs> you're going to sleep now. <laughs> so if you're, if, in our household, if you're, like, really, you're resisting doing something, or you're delaying it, and saying you're Blessing Dickie, a bit there, aren't you? <laughs> yes, grandma Grandma lives on through that. Yes. <laughs> so is, this is a practice that you then, do you do this on a daily basis or regularly? I do it regularly, yeah. I know I should do it on a daily basis, and we certainly did growing up, but sometimes you forget, you know. Yeah. And what does it, so what does it bring you? What does it mean to you? It reminds me of, all the places and people I'm connected to. And I kind of do it in a spiral. I start with the people who are closest to me and build my way out from there. So I start with Ben and with the cat and, and, and you know, on, on to the, the rest of our families and, and friends and communities. Um, and once I've got to a place where I feel like I've covered, uh, uh, where I feel satisfied with, with what I've done, I am... I, um, it brings me a sense of peace, and I often do this especially when I can't sleep, and you need to put aside the worries and cares that you can't help. My mom also taught me this this technique in terms of putting something in an envelope, you know, and it's, I think, something that Pope Paul Twenty-Third, am I lying? John the Twenty-Third, the guy who did Vatican II. Uh, I think used to say, which was that he slept very well at night because he just entrusted the whole world to God and that he could sleep and he, in the morning he could wake up and be the Pope again. And so, <laughs> um, I guess there's that element that you can trust that love, that God, if, if that's something that's for you, it will always see those people that you name. They will always be held and that it's okay for you to live in that comfort, but also in that you don't need to worry about them all the time. There's something bigger than you that, that has an eye on them. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find Kate Verneberg's spiritual practice, Circles of Love, in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com 
where you can listen to her guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Kate's currently writing her first novel, The Ring of the King, and her latest play, Joys and Splendors, will be workshopped by Tactics Theatre post-COVID-19. And you can find out more about all of this at Kate W. Berg on Instagram. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith. Our music is by Ron Kelly, and our design is by Barbara Kowalski. If this episode spoke to you, you can subscribe or leave us a review. But more importantly, pass it along to someone you care about. It's one way we can encourage each other to keep faith. Next week, I'll be talking to Rachel Simpson about how the transition from her family farm to the big city made her yearn for a sense of home and turn to the one practice she's had faith in her entire life, writing. So until then, holding you in hope and faith, I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.